All right, our scripture reading this morning is going to be from Ephesians chapter 4. I'll give you a moment to turn there. If you're using one of the Bibles, it's in the back. I think that's page 978. We're going to read 17 through 24 of Ephesians 4. Let's remind ourselves before we read this that this is God's word. Every word is inspired. It's written to us. Verse 17 says, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to a sensuality, to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires." And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, you're already in Ephesians chapter 4, so... It's my privilege this morning to get us back into this exposition. It was only four weeks ago that we returned to this because we took a, a break. And we have now arrived at the what I would call the extremely practical se- section of Paul's letter. So this is what we're going to think about the implications of all that has already been established by the Apostle Paul. You know that it's his uh, procedure, and we're going to get this problem worked out, believe me. (laughs) Uh, It's his procedure normally in the writing of letters to have a doctrinal section followed by an extremely practical section. That's not to say that the doctrinal part isn't practical, nor is it to say that the practical part isn't doctrinal, but that's the normal way that it is divided up. And so it is in the, in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are primarily doctrinal. So now Paul's going to deal with the, so this is what it means, this is what it needs to look like in your life. He's dealing with the so what of all that he has laid down. Now, I want you to notice again how this chapter actually begins in verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, key word, therefore, he's going to now draw some conclusions based upon all that he has already written. I therefore urge you to walk, and I'm just going to say right now that simply means to live, to behave, 
We use the word that way. We find it again in our text this morning, the usage of the word walk. We sometimes say, you know, that man walks close to the Lord. I like the way he walks. We're not talking about the way he moves his legs. And Paul says here in chapter 4, verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And that's what the rest of the book is about. How to walk in a manner, in a way, that is worthy of having been called into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, really beginning right here at verse 1 in chapter 4, going all the way to the end, we have 89 verses on how we should live based upon the truth that Paul laid down in the first three chapters. Now, in the first sermon, beginning in chapter 4, Pastor Mark drew our attention to unity. Unity of spirit and heart and mind ought to be one of the ways that we walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And then we focused our attention upon ministry. You you see the word unity in verse 3 of chapter 4, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then in verse 11, we come to the word ministry. I think it may have been Pastor Mark or Jonathan, one of those two, focused on that. It says, and he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And we focused our attention for some length of time, more than once, on how a healthy body of believers is a body that's not only united, but that ministers to itself, ministers to one another, and builds the body up and brings about the third thing that we considered last Lord's Day with Pastor Jonathan's help, maturity. So God wants Heritage Baptist Church, He wants all biblical churches to be characterized by people who are one with one another, not divided, people who are ministering in each other's lives, people who are growing and maturing in their Christian faith. And now this morning, we're going to see the attention move to what I'm going to call godliness. So how do we walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling? Not only in unity, Not only in ministry, not only in maturation, but in godliness. That's going to be the focus. Now, my personal title for this sermon, contrary to the graphic which was put on Christ, would actually be this. This would be my title for this morning's sermon. Live like a Christian. That's all Paul is saying In these verses, well, he starts by saying, don't live like you used to live, like a pagan, but live like a Christian. Live like a Christian. You see how closely related that is to verse 1? I urge you to walk, walk, behave, live, carry about your lives in a way that is answering to, in a way that's consistent with your calling. He's sort of introducing the whole idea of living like a Christian right in verse 1. But now we come back to it. And we're going to see that living like a Christian 
means becoming progressively like God. It means godliness. Now, let me show you how these verses, these eight verses break down, 17 through 24. Really, they break down into two very natural parts. In the first three verses, 17 through 19, Paul is drawing our attention to how we must no longer live. And then when we come to verses 20 through 24, he will turn to the positive and how we must increasingly live. And you see the but in verse 20. That marks the contrast. Let me just read very quickly. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become calloused and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But, but, that's not the way you learned Christ. See him make the shift? And we can all analyze the scripture. You, we don't have to be sem grads to when we see the conjunction, but to say, oh, this, there's a contrast coming here, isn't there? There's a shift here. There's a radical shift taking place. So that's the way it breaks down. How we must no longer live, how we must increasingly live. So let's think about the first part, verses 17 through 19. How we must no longer live. Now notice that it begins with what I would call a solemn introduction. Paul is purposely trying to make this, what he's about to write, uh, be received with a real sense of seriousness. I mean, I really think he wants his readers to almost say, wow, wow, wow. Do you hear what he just said? He said, I testify. Some translations, for example, the NIV say, I insist. Other possible translations are, I urge you. And another one could be, I implore you in the Lord. So you, when you put those two things together, he says, there's something I must insist in the Lord. This is very serious. So I just wanted to point out the solemnness of his introduction to how we must no longer live. And the second thing I want to just quickly point out is what he's going to say to us is an imperative. That is, it's a command. He's actually telling us something, and he's saying, you must, you must no longer live like a pagan. That's what Gentile means in this particular context. The word Gentile is used in this letter ethnically. We saw that in chapter 2. God is bringing together Jews and Gentiles ethnically, but often the word Gentile carries the connotation of pagan, and that's exactly the way he means it here in this text. And so I'm going to put it this way. I'm changing the word walk, literally in the Greek, to live, because that's what it means, and I'm, and I'm wanting us to think of the word Gentile as pagan. So what Paul is saying to his believers, to his sheep, and he was their pastor in a sense for three years when he was in Ephesus, he's saying, listen, you 
must, listen to me carefully, I insist on this. This is from God. This is from the Lord. I speak with divine authority. I represent the head of the church. I represent your Savior. Listen to this, Paul. You must not, or you must no longer live like a pagan. That's what he's saying. So, how do pagans live? Well, they knew how pagans lived because they used to be pagans. And I hope you know how pagans live because if you're a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if you've come to him by faith, giving him all of your sins, knowing they have to be paid for either by you or a perfect substitute, and receiving his perfect righteousness so that when God looks at you, it's as though you've never sinned. When you came to him, you came as a pagan. Now, you may not have been the worst visible sinner in Davis County or in Kentucky or wherever you hail from, but in your heart, you were on a pagan trajectory. And some of you were outwardly pagan in your lifestyle. So you know what a pagan is. They knew what pagans were. And Paul is saying to them, you must no longer live like a pagan. You must. You must no longer live like a pagan. How do pagans live? Well, he describes it for us. And the first thing he says is that their minds are futile. He begins describing paganism by the way we think or the way we used to think, as the case may be. You see in verse 17, in the futility of their minds... Then look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance. Those are key words. I don't know if you're given to doing this kind of thing, but when you read and study your Bible and meditate, you have a pencil. It's safer with a pencil than an ink pen, perhaps. And circle words like mind, thinking, ignorance, Say, you know, he's really concerned about the way we think or the way we used to think, isn't he? He's saying that before I was a Christian, my thinking was futile. It wasn't really producing any good, solid results. The way I thought was useless. It was purposeless. It didn't bear lasting fruit. You know what my problem was, according to the Apostle Paul? I had a darkened understanding. I had an inward ignorance. That's what paganism is like. And I want you to see what that kind of thinking, according to the Apostle Paul, is rooted in. So if we had a quiz and you had maybe 20 seconds or a minute to answer this question, how would you answer it according to the Apostle Paul in verse 18? What is the root cause of pagan thinking? What is the root cause of hardness or of um, ignorance, what is the root cause of this darkened understanding? Look at the text. I don't want you to answer out loud just now, but I want you, do you see the root cause? He talks about it. It's in the verse 8. The answer is right there. He says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, okay, but now what causes the ignorance? 
due to their hardness of heart. So what is, what is the problem with pagan thinking? Feudal mind, darkened understanding, caused by inward ignorance, rooted in hardness of heart. That's exactly the argument the apostle is putting before us. Bad thinking, darkened understanding, inward ignorance is rooted in, it grows out of, it is founded upon, although he's using the, you know, the, the plant analogy of something that has roots, it's rooted in hardness of heart. Pagan thinking is not first and foremost a brain problem. Do you realize that? When you have discussions with people who are on a completely different philosophical foundation, they deny the existence of God. They deny the concept of creation. They deny the idea of transcendent morality. You say that they really have a thinking problem. That's right, they do. They're not thinking clearly, their understandings are darkened. They have an inward ignorance. But what's the cause of that? Their hearts. There is an inward, soulish refusal to come under the power and the authority of God and His Word. At the center of a pagan's being, they hate God. They would not say it, perhaps, but they do. And the reason why they hate God is because they love something else. They love what we call autonomy, self-government. I'm going to be in control of my life. Don't tell me, God, what I can do and what I can't do. I'm going to be God of my life. I don't like this religion stuff because it says there's an authority over me to which I am responsible. No. I think for myself. I am a free thinker. That's the problem with you Christians. You don't even know how to think freely. What's what's at the root of that? Rebellion. Rebellion against authority. The quest for autonomy, which just means self-government. Pagans, by nature, are trapped in what I would call an an insatiable and never-satisfied quest for freedom. Freedom for what? Freedom to be their own god. Because if you can be your own God, then you can do whatever you want. Isn't that exactly what the devil tempted Adam and Eve with? He said, look, here's the deal. God's lying to you. He doesn't want you to be like him, which, of course, is exactly contrary to the truth. He does want, and that's what this passage is about. But the devil comes along and says, look, if you will just do what I say and eat this thing that he says don't eat, your eyes are going to be opened And you will know the knowledge of good and evil, and you'll be able to set your own system of ethics. You decide whether homosexuality or whatever it may be is acceptable. It's your call. So that's what the devil lied to Adam and Eve about, and that's at the root of paganism. Hardness of heart, which results in darkness of understanding futility of thinking, and inward ignorance. So a pagan, by nature, 
actually shackles himself, goes into deeper bondage because he wants to be free. That's a strange irony, isn't it? And that's exactly what Romans chapter 118 teaches us. Paul says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's a willful suppression. Romans 118. Man by nature suppresses the truth. He says, I don't want this to come up. I don't want this to come out because if this comes out, it's going gonna, it's gonna to say something to me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to believe it. Not going to embrace it. Not going to accept it. If I have to believe in evolution in order to have some philosophical reason for not believing it, then I'll embrace evolution. But I'm not going to embrace this. I'm going to suppress this truth. It's a willful act. It's rooted in the heart. And the heart, by nature, fallen as it is, is on an insatiable quest for autonomy and self-control. So what does this result in? And I skipped over it on purpose. It's in the middle of verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding. And then comes this little phrase, alienated from the life of God. But notice, that's, that too is the result of something. Because the very next verse says, because of the ignorance that is in them. So what's the root cause of alienation from God? Ignorance. What's the root cause of ignorance? Hardened heart. So you, when you analyze it, you can sort of put it together. You can see the progression. You see what's going on here. But the bad news isn't over. I want you to see that there's a progression that goes even further. And it comes out in verse 19. Perhaps I shouldn't even call it a progression. Maybe I should call it a digression. Look at verse 19. Would you call it a progression or a digression? They have become callous. And have callous in what? Well, obviously the conscience. They become callous. No longer sensitive. No longer tender. No longer dissuaded by, oh, I shouldn't do that. That won't be right. Well, I'll just do it this one time, but I I don't feel good about it. They've lost that. That's gone. Those barriers are gone. Futility of the mind, darkness of understanding, inward ignorance, rooted in hard hearts, not only causes us to be alienated from the life that is in God, but it causes us to experience a further digression into callousness, callousness of conscience. And what happens when our consciences become calloused, according to verse 19? And have given themselves up. Who? They. Who's the they? Pagans, who we once were, who some of you this morning perhaps still are. They have given themselves up to what? To sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Does that sound like digression to you? Or does that sound like the moral demise of culture in our world? It's the same answer, isn't it? Yes. Yes. When we, in hardness of heart, insist upon a futile thinking and a darkened understanding and ignorance within, 
not only do we become alienated from God because of this hardness of our hearts, but we become calloused and we progressively abandon ourselves to sensuality and to a greedy practice of every kind of impurity. There it is. It's in verse 19. That's the digression. You see the digression. In other words, how we think has a profound impact on how we live. That, that's, there's nothing rocket science about that. Is there? You're not surprised to hear that. If you really think in a certain way, you will behave according to what you think. So bad thinking lives to bad, leads to bad living. Bad thinking is rooted in hard hearts. It causes alienation from God, yes. It shuts out life from God, yes. But it also digresses into things that are even worse. The conscience becomes more calloused. We give ourselves up. You notice it doesn't, you know, in Romans 1, who, who's doing the giving up? God. You know that passage. Wherefore God gave them over. God gave them up. God said, I've had enough. It isn't that God ever gives up because he runs out of power. It's because in his holiness and justice, he says, the best way to deal with these people is to give them over to themselves and let them see the, root, the fruit of their lifestyle. He gives them over. So in Romans 1, God is giving up. But who's giving up here? Look at the text. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I mean, wow, I could take off on that for a while, couldn't I? There are forms of impurity characterizing the sexual revolution in our world, and particularly in our nation and other parts of the world, which are almost beyond imagination. I mean, we, we've moved from things that we thought we would never hear about to things far beyond that. We, to use the language of the Apostle Paul, pagans in this digression become greedy. This isn't greed for money, by the way, in this text. This is, I want more. I want more. I want more. I want more of what? I want more sensual pleasure. I want, I want to try something I want to try a new kind of impurity. It says every kind of impurity. They have given themselves up to sensuality. They have become greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's how paganism works. That's how culture degradates. And that's what happens in individual lives that are wrecked through this process. They become so increasingly sensual and so insatiably driven that they're literally addicted to every kind of impurity. Dear, dear people, what a horrifically fearful condition to get in. Such a person, such a pagan, believes himself or herself to be free. You know, I can quit this anytime I want. No, you can't. You can't quit it at all. You can't quit it at all, apart from some divine intervention. They think themselves to be free, 
but they're bringing themselves increasingly into a deeper and deeper soul-damning bondage and self-destruction. That's how it works. So just to review it, the hardened heart causes futility of mind, darkness of understanding, inward ignorance, calloused conscience, given over to sensuality, increasingly addicted to impurity and alienation from God. That's how it works. And I fear that some of us sitting here this morning perhaps are in that very path of digression. They're caught up in this hell-bound digression and will soon enough fall off the end of the slide into the lake of fire. I was thinking this week about how fun slides are and I like to take our grandchildren to the park and let them go down slides. And you know how fun it is. But once in a while, the child is a little too small, and when you go off the end of the slide, you land on your bottom, and it hurts you, and it was a little further fall than you hoped it would be, and then they learn how to slow themselves down. But the pagan is on a steep, slick slide, and it's so fun to be going down it faster and faster and faster, and when you come off the end of the slide... You go right into hell. You go right into the lake of fire. Unless God stops such a person. That's why I said a moment ago, it's horrifically fearful. God, have mercy on any of you here this morning who may be in that condition, self-deceived, self-hardened, self-darkened soul. You're willing to forfeit your eternal joy. You're willing to seal your damnation. For what? For what, I beg you? For a few fleeting moments of sexual pleasure? For a few fleeting seconds? For a few minutes or hours of some kind of alcoholic or drug-induced buzz? That's what you're willing to forfeit your soul for? For some new materialistic acquisition because you're not happy unless you get something new and it's so fun and it feels so good and it helps you for a little while and then it doesn't last. Oh, poor fool that you are. You know that the high never lasts. You know that it never really satisfies. And yet you're willing to play Russian roulette with your soul at the risk of a never-ending, eternally lasting pain, a never-to-be-restored relationship to the presence of God. I have to say it again. May God have mercy on your poor, corrupt, corrupting Deceived soul, you, if you're the person I'm speaking to, are of all people the most pitiful of human beings. You are in a trap. You are on a slide. You are in bondage. You are in darkness. 
You have an insatiable craving for pleasure which never satisfies. You're alienated from God. What a horrible condition. That's where paganism leads. But before I leave that section, how we are not to live, okay? Once again, breaks into two parts, 17 through 19, are how we are not to live. And Paul earnestly, solemnly says to his readers, you must no longer live like pagans. But before I leave it, I want to make an application to you, my dear fellow believers, even to those of you who are pursuing vigorously holiness of life. And here it is. It's a question. Here's my question. Who do you think Paul's writing to in Ephesians 4, verses 17 and following? Who's he writing to? Is this a book written? Is this an evangelistic tract primarily that he wants people to get out to lost, unconverted people? No, this is a letter. You, do you have to go back to one, one, chapter 1, verse 1, where he addresses his recipients as saints, as those who had been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and goes on to describe them as the forgiven people of God? So my question is, who's he talking to? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When he says, I say and testify, I urge, I insist in the Lord that you must no longer walk as pagans. Who's the you? You can't say the non-Christian. He's writing to believers. Why would he tell believers to be careful about falling back into a pagan way of thinking and living? If a true Christian is incapable of walking or living like a pagan, even for a while, if a true Christian is incapable of walking like a pagan, why would he say that to true Christians? You must no longer live that way. Paul, why are you wasting your time writing that kind of stuff to me? He would say, you don't know your heart if you're going to ask me that question. Are you kidding me? You haven't lived your Christian life long enough to know that you still have a proneness to live like a pagan, to think like a pagan, to act like a pagan, to, to actually experience the dulling of the conscience. You haven't lived your Christian life that long yet. That's what he would say to us. He's writing to us, dear people. He's writing to believers when he says that. The reason why is because we are capable not, not to totally abandon ourselves to paganism. The Bible teaches that God is a God who grants persevering and recovering grace. He will not allow a true Christian to abandon themselves permanently to paganism. He will discipline them. He may even kill them. He may kill them so that they go to heaven. They may commit a sin unto death. Read 1 Corinthians 11. For this reason, some among you sleep. Some of you have died. God is a God of discipline. 
I don't think he usually kills Christians. But I'll tell you what he does do. He disciplines them. And if you don't believe that, then you read Hebrews chapter 11 or chapter 12. There is no true father who doesn't discipline his children and neither does our heavenly father not discipline. He does discipline. So it's, it's possible for all of us, this poor, weak sinner trying to preach to you this morning, it's very possible for me to live like a pagan. And it starts with thinking like a pagan. It's very, very possible for my conscience to become hardened and seared. I fear it. I've experienced it. I need Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to say to me, Ted Chrisman, you must no longer live like a pagan. Your thinking is futile. Your understanding at this particular moment in time as you perceive this situation is darkened. You're, you're, you're suffering from some inward ignorance here, man. And I, and I can tell you, Ted, it's rooted in some hardness of heart that isn't entirely gone from you. Your conscience is becoming calloused. You're giving yourself over. You're giving yourself up to whatever. It's really serious, dear people. It's very serious. So hear me carefully. I'm saying two things. I'm saying, yes, Christians can live like pagans, but not forever. Because God has determined to sanctify them, and he's going to discipline them, and he's going to bring them to repentance, and they're going to recover. You want to, you want to go through that process, or do you want to just avoid it? What is the wise course of action? So, dear people, daily, daily, frequently during the day, you and I need to stop and evaluate our thinking and our behavior. We need to take some inventory. We need to stop and just say to ourselves, hmm, let's see, it's 10 o'clock this morning. Have I been uh, guilty of any futile thinking? They become futile in their thinking, in their minds. Has my mind been futile? Has my understanding in any regard been darkened today? Is there any hardness of heart going on in me? Is my conscience really getting more sensitive today or getting harder today? You know that when you do the same thing against the will of the Holy Spirit, and we can grieve the Holy Spirit, that it gets easier and easier and easier and easier to do it. You know, we all know that. So what should we do? We should stop frequently during the day and ask ourselves some good questions. That's what we should do. Because that's taking Ephesians 4 verse 17 seriously. 17 through 19. Okay, I've got to quickly turn to how we should then live, and I won't spend a proportionate amount of time, even though there are four verses here. You see the but in verse 26, but that's not the way you learn Christ. What isn't the way? This pagan way, this, this kind of... When you first became Christians, this is what Paul Sam's could put it in modern English, when you first became Christians, you... <clears throat> You came to know and embrace a Savior who 
paid for all of your sins. And you came to him with a broken heart and you said, God, I hate my sins. I'm tired of this bondage. I'm going to go straight to hell if you don't forgive me. And I see that Jesus took the wrath I deserve. I'm I'm coming to him. Jesus, save me. Have mercy on my poor, hell-deserving soul. I give you my sins. Give me your righteousness. I want you to be my Lord and Master. I want to follow you the rest of my life. Thank you for revealing yourself to me, Lord Jesus. It's the great prophet of the church. When that happened to you, did you say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hang on to a futile mind. And I'm going, to, I'm going to hold on to some darkened understanding and some inward ignorance. And I'm going to forget about how wonderful it is to have fellowship with God. I don't mind the alienation. I think I'm going to hang on to some of that. Yeah, I like the fellowship, but I like the alienation. And the conscience, you know... It's nice when it's tender, but I'm not going to safeguard my conscience. I want to enjoy what I want to enjoy. Is that how you learned Christ, says Paul? Is that how you felt? Is that what it meant when you came to him? Or did you say, I'm done with this? I'm through with this by the grace of God. And... Every true believer says, no, that's not how I learned Christ. And so it's interesting, in this passage, he's the subject. We learn him with the gospel, who he is. But would you, would you notice also in verse 20 that it says, he says, assuming that you have heard about him. And by the way, I think this is worth pointing out. The word about is not in the text. It's not in the Greek text. And they thought it would be helpful to put it in there, but it's not there. What it actually says is, assuming that you have heard him, who's him? Christ. Whenever you get saved, you hear Christ. And to the extent that I'm being faithful to his word this morning, you're hearing Christ through me. So he says, is that how you learn Christ? He said, I'm assuming that you have heard from him and were taught in him. Notice the rest of verse 20. You were taught in him as the truth is in Christ. And what was it that the Ephesian Christians learned from Christ and had been taught by him? Again, if your life depended on it, and I told you there are three answers, you've got to get all three of them right or you're dead. Would you get them? Here's, there's the quiz, quiz, okay? What are the three things the Ephesian Christians and all Christians at Heritage Baptist Church have been taught by Christ according to this text. There are probably, you know, a hundred things that are being taught. But in this text, what are the three things that he taught the Ephesian Christians and he taught you? Look at them. It's, and this is past tense. This is something that happened when you learned Christ, when you heard him, when you were taught in him, these are the three things you were taught. One, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self. Those are the three things. 
When you experience true conversion, at the point of conversion, you are taught by Christ to say, I'm done with this old me. I'm done with him. I'm crucifying him. And so Paul writes to the Romans and says, you are crucified with Christ, in Christ. We're done with that old man. And at the same time, a process begins. It's in, the, it's in between the two of them. It's the renewal of the spirit of their minds. Now, I'm going to get just a little grammatical, which, is, which it would be very dangerous for me to get more than a little grammatical, as Jonathan especially knows. But this, this expression, this, this verb, putting off, is in a tense that means it's something that was decisively done at a point in time in your life. But when it comes to the second thing that we're taught, which is the renewal of the spirit of our minds, it's, a, it's called a present infinitive. It's an ongoing process. And the other thing, the last thing, was also done once in a very initial once and for all kind of a way. We put off, we put on. Notice this is not an exhortation to put these two things off or to put the one off and put the other on. We always take that. That's the way I all week, in fact, this week, I thought, man, I've, I've forgotten about this. I've always kind of read this. Okay, this is an imperative. Paul is saying to me in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, that I'm to put off my old self. And he's saying to me in verse 23 that I'm to put on the new self. No, he's not saying that to me. And he's not saying it to you. He's saying when you got saved, when you were first converted, he taught you then to put off the old man and to put on the new. Then. Now he's doing something else. He's renewing your mind. Think of Romans chapter 12. By the renewing of your mind. The renewal of the mind is a daily, ongoing experience throughout the entirety of our Christian lives. Are any of your minds being renewed? If your life depended on it, could you say, here's what God has been doing in the renewal of my mind lately. I have a new understanding of such and such and so and so and such and such. And if you have to say, I don't know anything that God has taught me recently, then you haven't experienced it. You haven't experienced it. You're unconverted. You're lost. You're deceived. And if you haven't put off the old man, the old self, in some kind of an initial radical kind of way at the point of conversion, and put on the new in some initial and radical kind of way back whenever, you're not saved. You're not saved. And if your mind is not continually being renewed, no wonder you're futile in your mind and darkened in your understanding and have inward ignorance and hardness of heart and a propensity for sensual, sensual pleasure. We've got five senses. We live for these things. What we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we smell and what we touch. Feeling is a God and it'll take you straight to hell if you don't use your senses for the glory of God. It's so serious. Maybe I need to be forgiven for being so vehement about all this. If I do, then forgive me. I don't think I do. I think we need, some of us need to wake up. He's writing to Heritage Baptist Church. He's telling us. He's telling me. Don't live any longer like a pagan. It's a self-destructive course. And if you're a true Christian, you did put off the old man. You did put on the new man. You are in the process of having your mind renewed. And I'm just asking all of us, is there any evidence of that? 
I'm asking myself, is there any evidence of that? Or is it possible that my life or your life, (coughs) I'm going to say it isn't possible because I've already answered this question, but you have to answer it for yourself. Is it possible that your life is a life where you are becoming calloused and you are giving yourself up to sensuality and you are actually greedy to practice new kinds of impurity? Paul says if you're a true Christian, that's not the way you learned Christ. What you learned back then was to put off, put on, and continually have your mind renewed. Now, I need to bring this to a conclusion, so I'm going to do it, and I'm going to be pretty much oblivious to my notes. This is in my mind and my heart anyway. (coughs) When we put on the new self. Did we do that on our own or by the grace of God? Well, you already know the answer to that. But I'm going to show you the word that proves it's something that we both did. But it's a cause and effect, okay? It's like God flips the switch and the light comes on. Look at the word right after new self. And put on the new self. What's the next word? Created. Created. Created after the likeness of God. Have you ever created anything? There's only one person who can create. And that's God. You are a new... No wonder Paul says, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. We have been created in Christ unto good works. We're objects of a divine creation. That's what enabled us to put on the new self. That's what enabled us to put off the old self. That's what began the process of the renewal of the mind. So when God enabled us to put on the new self, He was creating us a new person. And what was his goal? What was his goal? It's in verse 24. This is my last quiz for the day. Your life depends on this one too. Why? What did he have in mind in recreating you? Look at the text. What did he have in mind when God chose to recreate you? According to this text. Put on, you put on, he taught you to put on the new self created here's the answer I hope this is what you saw after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness so God what were you up to when you created me he says restoring the image that man lost when Adam and Eve fell and you inherited from your fallen parents that's what redemption and salvation is all about it's God restoring his image in us There are two kinds of people in this gathering today. There are people in whom that process has never even begun, and there are the rest of us who are slowly but surely being transformed. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. See how close Romans 12 verse 2 is to Ephesians? We we have been recreated in the likeness of God. Could God have chosen a better goal 
in saving us than to make us like himself, what would you suggest to be a better goal than to make us like himself? Can you think of a better goal? That's the goal of salvation. So, but God wants me to be more like him tomorrow morning when I get up. He wants to be more like him this afternoon when I go home and I'm with my wife and maybe she says something that just for some reason rubs me wrong and shouldn't. And <clears throat> I want to be sharp and hurtful and caustic and say something sort of smart aleck. Does, he, does God really want me to be like him this afternoon? Does he want me to be like him in my relationships to other people? Does he want me to love his will? Yes, that's his ultimate goal. And that's why the great golden chain of God's redemptive acts, starting with predestination and so forth, well, foreknowledge, those whom he foreknow, he predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. So should we be surprised that he's begun the, prog- the process and it's happening? That's the other thing. That is progress. The other is digression. We are in the process of God graciously making him like himself, and someday it will be complete. We won't be like him in terms of his incommunicable attributes. That's just big language for saying we're never going to be omnipresent. We're never going to be omniscient. We're never going to be omnipotent. But we'll be without sin. And we'll be patient. There'll be no arguments. I wrote a letter to a pastor friend far away with whom I've experienced a breakdown of relationship. And it's gone on. And I wrote him this week, and I said, Brother, I'm getting too old to care about being right, at least in the way I used to. I'm sure that in some ways I sinned and contributed to that breakdown. But I said to him, I said, Brother, I don't want to wait till the day of judgment when we will be made perfect, and there will be. I know that's going to be true. If you don't get all your relationships fixed up before you die or before Christ comes back, they will be fixed up the moment he comes if you're a true Christian and your friends. You want to wait that long to solve a, a broken relationship? I said, I don't want to wait till then. That's from God. So, dear people, don't, don't live. Don't live like pagans. You already put off the old man. Yes, there's a sense in which you still have to fight against the old remnants. And there's a sense in which we keep renewing ourselves. But basically, that happened at conversion. Paul. No, not Paul. God. I told Tina last night when she came up to my office while I was studying. I said, I just have one burden. I want to understand God's burden in this passage for our church and for me. And I think God's burden is really simple. He doesn't want us to live like we're pagans. He wants us to become like him. He wants us to be what we are. We're Christians. We did put off the old man. We have put on the new man. We're being renewed. He created us. And his goal was to make us like him. That's what will help this be a better church if the members of this church will become progressively more like God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for being such poor image bearers of you. We thank you that you haven't left us 
with just a marred image, but that you have begun in the lives of those of us who know and love you to, change, to transform us into your image. It's a beautiful work, God, and, it, and there's a lot of work to be done yet in all of us. We want to be like our Savior. We want to be like you in true righteousness and in true holiness. And we ask that you will see to it that that process continues. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.